Well, good morning. If you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand, and the ushers will get a Bible to you. If you don't know who I, who I am, my name is John Bechtel, and I'm the associate pastor here at Evanston Bible Fellowship. If you really want to know what that means and what I do, please come find me sometime, and I would love to plug you in and find some way for you to serve our church. And before I begin, I, I want to say a quick hello to my wife and to my newest daughter, who are listening live in Riga, Latvia right now. Um, they, left, they left yesterday, and they landed this morning. I love you guys. I hope that you are well and semi-rested. Irena, I'm glad that you got real Latvian food and got your dill sauce that we can't make here. And I um, hope you guys get some sleep. We're praying for your court date tomorrow and safe travels home. Irena, please listen to my message. I have questions for you when you get back. We are, going to be, we are in the process of exploring the idea of live streaming. So if that's something that you think would be, would be interesting to you or be helpful for you here at EBF, please let Andy or uh, Pat know that that's something that would be helpful. And I just want to remind you that this is a wonderful tool when you're out of town. It's not meant to be something to replace coming uh, to church, but we want to know if it's something that folks are interested in. You know, for the last few weeks, as we started 2013, we've been talking about this whole idea of revival. It's a wonderful thing. It's a God-ordained thing. It's a challenging thing. It's something we all want to do. We want to walk with the Lord in such a way that our minds are renewed, that our hearts are awakened, and that our hands are moved to action in love. And really, all we're talking about is living the normal Christian life. Um, we think it's a radical idea, but really we're just talking about living a normal Christian life. And so we want to do something that you saw in the front of your bulletins called Prelude to Revival. We know that God is the only one who brings revival. So we're not going to be um, so arrogant to think that we can make revival happen. But there is things that we can do to prepare our hearts and to consider things in our lives. And um, so what we've been doing the last few weeks is we've been looking at something called the seven deadly sins. Now let's make it very clear that all sin is deadly. But these seven deadly sins we've been looking at are, are, are real common um, sins that beset so many of us in a daily way. And it's a wonderful thing to, to consider them, to see if we can root them out as we prepare to meet God. We will be meeting, trying to meet uh, for that week, March 10th to 17th. We'll be meeting day and night to hear from his word to pray and to worship him and to, to seek his face. So far, so far in our Seven Deadly Sins series, we've covered pride and envy and wrath. And today, we're going to cover sloth. Sloth. Webster's defines, defines sloth as a disinclination to action or to labor or a spiritual apathy or inactivity. A lot of images come to mind when we think of sloth, huh? And actually, if you think about pop culture right now, sloth is very in. The actual, the animal, the three-toed, two-toed sloth, he's very in right now. If you don't believe me, just Google it. Generally, when we think about sloth, we, we have funny images in our head. Um, I have an image in my head of sloth that I think about, and I've asked this family member permission ahead of time. But when I think of sloth, this is the picture I usually have in my head.
I love how he just has one eye open. He's too lazy to open both eyes to look at me. Uh, that's my dog, Baxter, in case you didn't know. I have, I have four beautiful daughters who, who are my life, but, but that's my dog. You know, we find sloth to be funny. We find it to be entertaining. We find it to be, in some ways, fun. Let's just pick on pop culture for a little bit. Think about the last decade, the 90s, for those of you who were alive and aware in it. We entertained ourselves by watching a show that famously declared they were about nothing. And right after that show, what did we do? We watched a show about a bunch of friends sitting around who were doing nothing. Well, we fast forward to this decade, and we find that writing stories about nothing has become too much effort, really. So we're entertained now by actually watching real people sitting around and actually doing nothing. And if that wasn't enough, our days have become full of tweets and more and more status updates about cute kittens and what I just put in my coffee. We are watching more and more about less and less. At first glance, it seems to be funny. It looks like a good time. But the Bible offers a very different view of sloth. In Scripture, we see that sloth is really a terrible affront to God. It's horrifically selfish. And its end is destruction. Now, you may be sitting here thinking, okay, I don't, I don't even have a Facebook account. I get up early. I'm busy. So I can check out for the next 30 minutes or so, right? Not so fast. I like how one author puts it. He says this, The temptation to do nothing is hardly a temptation. Let me say that again. The temptation to do nothing is hardly a temptation. It's just the default setting of our hearts. The default setting of our hearts. All of us are in this fight against sloth every moment of every day. And just to help us get on the same page and get us thinking about how ingrained sloth really is in our, our lives, I'd like to go through some questions. Uh, Jason's been mentioning this book. It's called The Seven Daily Sins, How the Gospel Redeems Our Deepest Desires. Author Jared Wilson, he asked these questions to diagnose our personal lives. You ready for these? You ready? Okay. Number one, do you have a difficult time starting projects. Number two, are you prone to procrastination? Now keep track now. Yes or no in your head. Keep track. Number three, do you have a difficult time finishing projects? Not just starting, but finishing. Number four, when people are soliciting help for something, do you try to keep a low profile so as not to be asked? Do you make a lot of excuses? Number six, this is good. Would you be embarrassed if your employer knew how much time you spend surfing the web, chatting with friends, or just generally goofing off while at work? Somebody emailed me uh, a stat this week that said the average person spends over two hours a day doing just that at work. Number seven, do you struggle to maintain a regular time of prayer? In Bible reading. Number eight, is your house constantly cluttered or in need of cleaning? Number nine, 
Do you have lots of regrets about opportunities you didn't seize? And number 10, do you pretend not to notice when obvious messes or areas of need, areas that need attention, expecting someone else to take care of them? Then Wilson offers this wonderful little diagnosis at the end. He says, answering yes to one or two of these questions could be an indication that slothfulness is in your life. But answering yes to more than two is a flashing red light. We're all in this fight against sloth. So here's the plan. We're going to look at a passage and we're going to try to identify and make some observations about what exactly sloth is. We're going to look at one passage then um, that, uh, that paints this very clear picture for us. And once we define it, we're going to look at another passage that offers a bit of a remedy. And then we're going to have some final thoughts to both encourage and challenge us to wake us up. So let's jump into Proverbs 26. If you have your Bibles, turn to Proverbs 26. In the book of Proverbs, which we've been going through, a, a person of sloth is given the not-so-flattering name of sluggard. And that's where we're going to be spending our time, looking at the sluggard. Now, Proverbs 26 is really a long poem, and it outlines the, the attitudes and the actions of a fool. And right in the middle of this, we have this amazing picture of a special kind of fool. Before we jump in the text, I have one thing to say. This passage is probably the funniest passage in all of the Bible. And we're going to laugh. We're going to laugh a lot. But I think it's important to remember what is behind the humor. Don't forget the purpose here. The absurdity of the images we're about to see only serves to highlight the utter absurdity of the sluggardly lifestyle. Okay? So let's look at verse 13. We'll read 13 to 16 together. The sluggard says, there's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets. As a door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. So the sluggard buries his hand in a dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. So let's unpack this. I have six observations I'd like to make, and let's make observation one. Sluggards make excuses. You know, Proverbs 22.13 echoes this idea. And here we see the sluggard saying almost the same thing. He says, there's a lion outside. I'll be killed in the streets. But you see here in chapter 26, it really gets worse because the word lion in, ch in chapter 26 here, it really means lion cub. So he sees a lion cub and he can't go on the streets. What's the modern equivalent? I, I can't go outside. I might be hit by a bus. Or I might be hit by a bike. I can't do it. It's simple and straightforward, right? What's this guy doing? He's just making a very transparent attempt to avoid going to work. That's what he's doing. But there's some deeper, I think more dangerous things we can see through this slugger who makes excuses. You know, he's not living life. He's not living in the present. He's not, he's not allowing, um, he, he is allowing what might happen to control what really is. And then we can also see that the sluggard, he is a dishonest man. It would be more 
um, helpful, more beneficial, more honest if he just came out and said, I don't want to go to work. I want to be lazy. No, but he has to make an excuse. And his days are filled trying to, to fool others and trying to deceive others and deceiving themselves. If we look at verse 14, we get another very visit, vivid picture. As the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard in his bed. Which leads to observation number two. Sluggards can be very active doing the wrong activities. You know, we see this person moving in bed. He's moving. He just isn't going anywhere, right? He's not making any progress. You see, sluggards actively pursue the wrong things. They mimic motion, they mimic work, but they stay put. The lack of initiative to do what really needs to be done, that, that's, what, that's what a sluggard is, is characterized by. Now, I look out to this wonderful congregation this morning, and I would bet, if I were a betting man, that we are one of the busiest congregations in the country, if not maybe the world. So we really can't struggle with sloth, right? Pastor Eugene Peterson writes about the scandal of the busy pastor. It applies to my life, and I think it applies to all of us here. This is what he says. The word busy is a symptom not of commitment, but of betrayal. It is not devotion, but of defection. The adjective busy set as a modifier to pastor should sound to our ears like adulteress to characterize a wife or embezzling to characterize a banker. It is an outrageous scandal, a blasphemous affront. And he goes on to explain why we're busy. He offers two main reasons. One is because we're proud. And we love to see people see us with our full schedule. It makes us feel important. It makes us feel wanted. It makes us feel needed. It gives us value. But the other reason is because we're busy because we're lazy. We allow others to, to make our agendas, to give us our agendas, to tell us what to do throughout the day. And we take on all these crazy matters of secondary importance. And I hope you see the scandal here. I, I hope you see the affront. Peterson is saying a busy pastor is, is not living out his calling to, to love God and to serve people, is he? He is living to make himself, really, like a God. He's more concerned about pleasing people than truly loving or serving him. It's backwards. No wonder Peterson calls it, likens it to cheating or to stealing. The sluggard often parades as the busiest person there is. You know, Jason talked last week about preaching to yourself, and this really hits home for me. You know, so often I hear when I talk to you at church, one of the first things I hear out of your mouth is, I know you're busy. And I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be so slothful with my, with my agenda, with the way I live my life, that I don't have time for you, God's people, which I've been called to love and to serve. So if you see me getting too busy, if you see me 
Um, if you see that in my life, I, I just want to encourage you, just please lovingly call me out. I need it. I need you. You see, when I, when I live that way, when I do this, I'm really doing what so many of us do. It's so easy to confuse the wise, disciplined life of intentional work with the hectic, responsive busyness of the sluggard. And we are fools. In the end, we're only fooling ourselves. Another pastor, C.J. Behaney, puts it this way, the realization that I could simultaneously be busy and lazy, that I could be a hectic sluggard, that my busyness was no immunity from laziness, became a life-altering and work-altering insight. What I learned is that busyness does not mean I am diligent. Busyness does not mean I am faithful. Busyness does not mean I am fruitful. The sluggard can be busy. Busy neglecting the most important work and busy knocking out the the to-do list filled with tasks of secondary importance. So the question for all of us today is, what kind of busy are we? Are we going about the fruitful, intentional work that God has called us to do? Are we busy living the agenda of others? Are we busy wasting our time on frivolous and wasteful pursuits? That's a question only you can answer for yourself. But if we look at this verse a little more deeply, we can see something else. Something else even more dangerous and more insidious. Over this call in his life, over his need to provide for his family, over his need to follow through his responsibilities, the sluggard values something. He values comfort. Which leads to observation number three. The sluggard worships themselves in their own comfort. You see, being a sluggard is so much more than just being lazy. At its core... It's about lacking love. You see, we can never actively pursue the love of God and love of others, love of others when, when our own comfort is the chief end of our existence. It just can't happen. So you take it a step further, and the sluggard is actually hateful. I love what Jared Wilson says in his book. Uh, He says this, Sloth is a limp fist shaken at God, an unconcerned defiance of his sovereignty and commands, and a feeling of boredom about his love. This is what the Bible calls hating God. And folks, being hinged to your bed doesn't help you love people either. The sluggard worships themselves in their own comfort Okay, let's keep going. Now we're getting ridiculous here. Look at verse 15. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish, and it wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. Halfway through this job, the guy quits. Halfway through. And we're not talking about something hard or something difficult. We're talking about something very important, about eating. This guy is too lazy to take care of himself. 
Proverbs 12.27 echoes the same idea. It says, whoever is slothful will not roast his game, but the diligent man will get precious wealth. Here we have a picture, a hunter, he goes to the trouble to go hunt something. Then he gets it and he brings it home. I can't cook it. I don't have time for that. He's too lazy to finish preparing what he caught. You know, this guy is so concerned for his own rest and his own comfort that he fails to take care of himself properly. And we see there that then there's great waste. But this ridiculous picture reveals something even more deeply embedded again in the sluggard. You see, not only is this guy not motivated to finish an important job, feeding himself, but the very thought of work induces a mental fatigue. He's too spiritually worn out to provide for the basic care for himself. He so dislikes any form of work that the very thought exhausts him. Which leads to observation number five. Sluggards have a wrong view of work. You see, if your life is really all about yourself and your comfort, anything that impinges upon that will be considered bad, right? Life, then, is viewed as one vacation, where I get what I want, what I deserve, with necessary but painful breaks, where we have to do something to sustain our existence. Otherwise, in other words, work. Remember, sloth is our default. And I love how marketers pick on this deeply embedded wrong thinking uh, about work. It's all over the place. I think my favorite is this. You deserve a break today. Because after all, uh, life really is about getting breaks. That's, that's really what we live for, right? We need to think rightly about work if we're going to break this pattern of sloth in our lives. You see, God called each of us individually to fulfill his purposes. And with this calling come specific roles, maybe for a season, maybe for a lifetime. But fulfilling all of these roles requires one thing. It requires work. Now, we don't have time to fully uh, cover the idea of work, but I'm going to sum it up with a quote from a book called The Proverbs-Driven Life, by, a book by Pastor Anthony Salvaggio. He says this, Work is neither drudgery nor an idol. God intends work to be a calling in which we find personal satisfaction, and more importantly, in which we can glorify the living God in at least two important ways. First is the, in the productivity and creativity of our work. We echo God's work in creating and sustaining all that exists. Second, if we can, as we confront the challenges of our work, our grace-motivated responses demonstrates the fruit of God's Spirit in us. That's what work is. But the slugger doesn't see this. And he lives for his own purposes. And he continues to primarily focus on his own comfort. He sees work as an intrusion. So he's hinged to the bed, flopping back and forth back and forth. Which sadly leads us to verse 16. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. Here we see the delusional heart of a sluggard. You see, he thinks that avoiding work is, is the surest proof of his wisdom. But it only proves his folly. He's not doing what he's designed to do. And on top of that, he adds conceit. You know this idea of these seven, men, these seven men? It really means there's an endless line 
of wise people who keep coming to him. And he won't listen. He just stays tethered to the bed. Which gives us the very uh, obvious observation number six, that sluggards are proud. The sluggard is in activity, thinks he is wiser than everyone, and won't listen to anyone. That's the very definition of a fool in the book of Proverbs. So I think we're getting the picture, right? Being a sluggard is not a good thing. Sloth is bad. We make excuses. We can be very active doing the wrong things. We worship ourselves and our own comfort. We don't finish things. We have the wrong view of work, and we are proud. Proud fools. Again, if you're a sluggard, it's not good. It's not good. But what can you do? Well, I love how God's word offers help. And we find an antidote of sorts for sloth in Proverbs 6, chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. So please turn there. Here the teacher tells his, his son, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands in rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So you want to fight sloth? You really want to do this? You want to fight it? What's step one? Get up. Get up. Rouse yourself. You need to move with intention. If we don't do that, it's not going to happen. We're to go. Go. But then also we're called to see. Open our eyes. Look. Look with intention. Look to learn and to grow. When we consider her ways and be wise, we're looking with intention. You know, yesterday, Layla and Arena boarded a 747, um, and I'm sure they had their safety check, right? Their safety, their pre-boarding, or their pre-flight safety instructions that we all hear, you know, that everybody knows what they are. I bet you she listened, but I bet you she didn't listen um, as if her life depended on it. About three years ago, uh, my wife made the, the, it was her decision to get into a plane that worked perfectly well and, and to jump out of it. Um, I, I will bet you that she listened more carefully to those pre-flight instructions than she did uh, to what she listened to yesterday on the 747. And here's, the, here's the thought, guys. We need to listen like we're jumping out of the plane. We need to observe and consider our lives like our very lives depend on it. We can't be stuck in this apathetic idea that, oh, it's going to carry me over. We need to listen like our lives depend on it. We're supposed to study and see like our lives depend on it. Now, what are we supposed to study here? Now, isn't this great? We just heard that the, the sluggard, he won't listen to anybody. Well, who's he sent to? Isn't this beautiful, beautiful and ironic? The sluggard thinks he knows everything and doesn't need to listen to anyone. He's sent to the ant. To the ant. 
about as low and insignificant a creature as you could find on the planet. But don't forget, this is for you and me too. Though you and I are made in God's image, our sinfulness has reduced us to the point of this sluggard. We're all about to be tutored by a bug. And what does this bug teach us? You see, as small as it is, the ant is active, he's intentional in his work, it has an innate desire to work industrially, it's internalized this wisdom, and is acting in accordance with that wisdom. It's self-governed. It's self-directed. It needs no taskmaster to make it work. It does not need accountability to make it work faithfully. It needs no administrator to give it plans to act upon. It works in the right time in the right way. It takes care of others. It gathers food for the community, so it acts in love. And unlike the sluggard, the ant works within a created order. The understanding that honest work will yield a good harvest. While the sluggard, he just thinks that I can profit apart from hard work. So what's the big deal about this ant? It's pretty simple. It boils down to this. The ant is doing what it was created to do. To work. Just like us. You see, you and I were created to work. Look what Genesis 1.28 says. And God said to them, at the very beginning, before the fall of man, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That's work, people. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And it goes further. And he says, he says um, to the man in Genesis 2.15, look what he says. The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Work is part of being human. This is before the fall. Work is what we are called to do. We will see later what what exactly that work entails. But before sin entered the world, we need to understand that we were designed for work, called to work. And what are we supposed to work for? For God? for his purposes for God and for his purposes so the ant stands as a simple reminder do what you're supposed to do work as you were intended to you know a racehorse was made to run a race car was made to go fast the worst thing you can do is shut them up in a stable or in a garage it will ruin them they're just not doing what they're intended to do and what will it ultimately end up in the destruction of both of them And the same thing is going to happen to us if we are sluggards, living for our own comfort, living for um, ourselves. And look at the final call to action accompanied by this warning of consequences. Look back at at Proverbs 6. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Wake up. Wake up. It's a call for the sluggard to get up when he wakes up. But it's so much more than that. It's it's a call to move out of our mental carelessness. It's a call to move out of our spiritual apathy. But look at the sluggard again. He knows everything, right? Look at his response. 
a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands. You know what he's really saying? Let's put it in modern terms, right? You know what he's saying? Whatever. Whatever. I'll do it sometime. I'll do it sometime. It's flat-out negligence. It's a waste. And remember, this guy isn't sleeping to avoid work. He's sleeping to escape the real call in his life. And he's escaping, he's sleeping to escape the consequences that he's facing by not living out the real call in his life. And there's consequences. Boy, are there consequences. Poverty and ruin. You know, there are 14 Proverbs that are directly linked sloth to poverty in the book of Proverbs. Now, you have to understand, too, that this isn't just about money. This isn't about monetary um, uh, poverty. But we're talking about the bitter end, the bitter end of the sluggard. He doesn't just end up without money. He ends up without the necessities of life. Remember, he was too lazy to put food into his mouth. Well, that food will be taken away from him at some point. Now, let's remember, we're not talking about the poor here. That's not what we're talking about. Look at Proverbs 19, 17. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Let's make very clear that God has a heart uh, for those in need of virtue of circumstances beyond their control. That's not what we're saying but we're talking about destruction and deprivation and ruin due to intentional, ongoing carelessness, apathy, and foolishness. Not only will it come into the life of a sluggard, but will come out of the blue. It will catch him totally unexpectedly, and everything will be lost. There will be, be no home, no security, no support. There's real consequences for our sin. There's real consequences for our sin. And by choosing sloth, it is clear we are choosing our own personal ruin. But this ruin goes even deeper than that. Proverbs 18, 19 says this. This this is hard. Whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. So if you choose the path of the sluggard, you're going to destroy yourself. But there's an idea behind this this phrase, him who destroys, in this verse. It's the the idea, it's really a vandal. He's a brother to a vandal. A vandal arrives unexpectedly and destroys everything wantonly in its path. You see, being a sluggard affects more than your own life. Your carelessness and apathy will bring harm to others as well. See, a vandal, he's like a car bomb. It's like a car bomb. Boom. He blows up, and the car is gone. But his brother, the sluggard, he's like rust. He simply sets the car aside, doesn't use it for what it's designed for, doesn't care for it, and it rusts away. Both end at the same place. In wanton, wasteful destruction. Well, where do we go from here? We've seen what a sluggard looks like. 
We've seen a call to rouse ourselves, to wake, to look like our lives depend on it, to see like our lives depend on it, to, to learn. We've been given a final warning. So what do we do with this? What do we do with the idea of sluggard in Scripture as we look at our own hearts and minds? Well, I, I think we need to stay there. I think as we prepare for prelude to revival, we need to continue to look harder and longer and deeper at our own hearts and our own minds. We need to consider our behaviors. We need to consider the heart's drive behind our behaviors. And I think it boils down, really, to just one question. If you have one takeaway from this morning, please let this be it. Maybe some of you need to go, we all could benefit from this, but maybe some of you need to spend this afternoon, maybe you need to skip even that, that there's a game on. Maybe you need to skip that uh, today and ask yourself this question because this question is the most important question you really will ever answer. Who are you living for? Only you can answer that. Are you living for God and his purposes or for yourself and your comfort? It's simple, it's clear, it's black or white. That's a question we all need to answer. Who are you living for? And the only way we're going to defeat sloth, which again is our default, the only way we'll defeat sloth, the only way we'll defeat any of these seven sins is to live for God. Because you see, living for, living for God does exactly what we need to help us beat sloth. It helps us to think rightly about yourself, rightly about your work, and rightly about your time. So I'd like us to consider these truths as we close here. Living for God helps you think rightly about yourself. You may be wondering, who am I? What is my purpose? You didn't answer that for me. Well, if you're a child of God through faith in Jesus, I want you to listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2.10. We do 2, 8, and 9, and sometimes we forget 10. Listen to 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Brothers and sisters, if you belong to Jesus, if you are a Christian, if you've asked him into your heart, if you are seeking to live as he is your Lord, that he is your Savior, you are God's. He made you. He redeemed you. You are an amazing and beautiful new creation. And Ephesians 2.10 says you have a job to do. You have a job to do. There are good works for you to do that God sovereignly planned for you to do before you even existed. And laying in our bed like a hinge is not what we're supposed to do. It's not what we're supposed to do. We're not made to be selfish, lazy, careless, and proud. You have purpose. You have worth. And you can choose to act. You can choose to act today, to be who you are, to be that workmanship. 
to seek to do the good that God has called you to. To do what you were made to do. Well, if that was what I was made to do, what is my work? When we're working for, for God, we understand this. I want you to hear this. It doesn't matter your station in life. It doesn't matter your role in an organization. It doesn't matter if you're working full-time in ministry. It doesn't matter if you're the CEO. It doesn't matter if you're working on the assembly line. God's call on his children is the same for all of us, everywhere, and for all time. Consider what Paul says in Colossians. He says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Whatever you do, whatever you do, it's pretty all-encompassing. Whatever you do, do it mightily. Do it hardly as to the Lord, not, unto, not, not for men. And then 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul says something very similar. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. We're called to work. We're designed for work, to work diligently and fruitfully for God in whatever we do. We're not made to make excuses. We're not made to try and evade our comfort. We're not made to worship comfort. That's, that's not us. That's not who we are. But note this too. And this is important. Listen. But our work as God's children is not only working for him, but it's working to become like him. Our work is not only working for God, but we're also called to work to become like him. Hear that. Is sloth a problem in your life? You need to reset your own default? If so, I want you to remember. Please remember that there is power beyond yourself to help you work and to help you change. And whether this is your first time or your hundredth time or your thousandth time, you can draw, draw near to God. You can accept the free grace of the good news of the gospel. And as Paul puts it, you can work out your salvation with fear and trembling with God's help and power. You need to work to defeat sloth. But it's a grace-driven effort. Yes, work and, and grace do go hand in hand. As one pastor put it, grace isn't opposed to effort, but to earning. Grace isn't opposed to effort. God wants to see his children work. It's what he made us to do. One works towards God. It's not about earning our salvation but to grow in our love for him and our likeness of him. As D.A. Carson so famously put it, people don't drift towards holiness. It takes work. It takes work. As we consider this possibility of revival in our own lives, in the life of our church, as we really consider it over the next month, we need to get up. We need to wake up. We need to look long and hard at ourselves. We need to look and to learn like our lives depend on it. We need to stop making excuses. We need to get off the spiritual couch and do some hard, honest, grace-driven, God-honoring work. And don't wait. Don't wait. See, because living for God, living in the grace of the gospel, being, uh, doing grace-driven work, is of the utmost importance. 
of the utmost importance. We need to make the most of our time. I, I love what Paul says in Ephesians 5.15. Look carefully, then how you walk. Not as the unwise, but as the wise, making the best use of time, because the days are evil. We need to make the most of our time, every moment and every day. And in a few moments, we're going to be taking communion. And, you know, we come to the table, and we get to revel in God's work on our behalf, right? We get to revel and rejoice in that, that he saved us through the work that he accomplished on our behalf on the cross. But we have work to do when we come to the table as well. Let's not forget that. We're called to examine ourselves and see if our hearts really belong to him and if our lives are really being lived for him. So I pray that as as we enter into this time that we will all work, that we will work hard to make the most of this time. May we see sloth for the sin that it is in our lives, but may we believe that Jesus Christ and what he says, may we believe in him for the forgiveness of this sin and all the rest of our sin. May we believe him for the full pardon of the debt of our sin. And may we receive his righteousness as our own with the promise that we can live victoriously today. We can do it. We can overcome sloth along with the promise of eternal life. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I I beg that you will come and do your work in my life and the life of these dear ones. Give us the ability to look and to see and to be wise. May we not live for comfort and for ourselves, but for you. In Jesus' name, amen.